Angie, did you have a favorite fable or story you liked as a kid? Well, actually I had several and they were mostly Aesop fables. And yes, so guess what? What? I'm going to replace today's quote with one of Aesop's fables. Terrific. Hi, everyone, and here we are celebrating what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice. I'm Rod Jones. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to the Thought Road Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and we are available virtually anywhere you listen to podcasts. No matter what you do creatively, this is the podcast for you. Okay, Angie, what are we going to discuss today? Well, today we're going to be speaking with Tiffany Apostolou about her experiences as an art researcher and the reemergence of Greek art. Well, you know what? This is going to be really interesting, especially about her thoughts on living in Greece. I'm Mm -hmm. kind of interested about that. But how about your quote? Well, you know, actually, as I mentioned before, oh, yeah. I'm not going to do a quote today, but I'm going to share one of my favorites, Aesop's Fables. And okay, this one is called The Crow in the Pitcher. And a thirsty crow comes across a pitcher, which has been full of water. But when it puts his beak into the mouth of the pitcher, he can't reach the water. He keeps trying and trying, but he gives up. At last, he comes up with an idea, and he's going to drop pebbles into the pitcher. And as soon as the water rises to the top of the pitcher, he is able to quench his thirst. I know there must be a lesson (laughs) in that because that's typical of his fables. Yes. So what's the lesson? Okay, so little by little does the trick. When at first you don't succeed, Try, try again. Persistence is the key to solving any problem. If your first solution doesn't solve your problem, think of another solution. Keep trying until you get an answer. After all, it's better than just doing nothing at all. You know what? That's kind of a positive mantra that a lot of people are are trying to adhere to today. Absolutely. Stick to it. Don't give up. Stick to it and keep trying because, you know, maybe it's just taking time for you to learn, you know, all of the things that you need to learn and don't give up. And especially today, things can be very overwhelming with having to work more online and then you're more prone to make some mistakes. Mm -hmm. And when you make mistakes, it could be very, very frustrating. So the best solution to that is take a couple of deep breaths and try again, right? Yeah. And then nobody's perfect, you know, and, <laughs> and you're you're not going to be perfect. And it's that's what makes you you and interesting. So, Rod, now it's your turn. We're ready for Rod's motivational moments. Well, you don't know. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if I could really possibly come up with something as interesting as that fable you shared. Well, I think you can. Well, here it goes. (laughs) I had a very, very good friend of mine. His name was Paul Eastman, and he was a very accomplished musician. He was also a psychologist, of all things, to be a musician with. But he would jokingly say to me, that person can see through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. 
And I used to laugh when he would say that because I know some of the people he might have been <laughs> referring it to. But what he was implying is that some of us can be so focused on ourselves, uh, we miss the point of what's going on around us. True, like monodimensional focus. And that's that's not really the best thing for anyone, I don't think. Well, you don't want to tune other people out, no. especially you just never know what you can learn from someone else. But you know, it's good to be focused on your projects and what you're doing because that's going to help you succeed. But you also have to be open to other people's ideas and not be so focused that it's all about you. Mm-hmm. And listen to what other people say. You'll never know what you will learn. And I remember telling our daughter one time, I said, you know, some people are going to tell you stuff that they've told you 10 times before. And you just have to be polite and nod your head and go, oh, that's very interesting. Because people do it, unfortunately, as we get older, we have a tendency to do it a little bit more. You know what? I think we do that as we get older more because we're retelling and reliving the story and we're hoping that we can impart some kind of wisdom or some some kind of moral of the story to, to someone maybe that's younger or even the same age. But you're just trying to relay a message of some kind to be helpful to your fellow human. Well, I know. And I know we've done that. I've done it, especially to our daughter. Yeah. I've told her the same story 10 times and she's very polite, <laughs> smiles at me, nods like, I know what you I've heard this a million times, but she still sits there and it's very sweet and gives me a smile. Right, right. But it seems like oral storytelling, folklore, superstitions, and even quotes can be motivational or sometimes just scary with some of the, the fables and things like that. But that's only if you focus on it too much. Well, I think. They can, some of the superstitions can be downright scary. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, the black cat one, that's probably the most famous, or walking under a ladder. Yeah. I assume that's the sort of thing you mean. And nursery rhymes, nursery rhymes, Grimm's fairy tales could be really scary. Like, what is that? London Bridge is burning down? Yeah, London Bridge is burning down. Well, that's Bridges more of a nursery yeah, yeah, that is a nursery rhyme and Humpty Dumpty and all that stuff. But you have a superstition that you do sometimes. Well, you do every time you have to come back in the house and you've forgotten something. Yeah, that one comes from my mother and both my sisters and I do it. And when I would leave the house and I'd forget something and mm-hmm. run back into the house, my mother would say, sit down and count to 10. She was very, very firm about us doing that. And I would sit down, count to 10. Of course, I say, why am I doing this? And she would say, well, because you have to sit here so something bad won't happen when you leave again. So I would do it faithfully. And then interestingly enough, as I've done it and our daughter does it. I know you taught her this and I had never, ever heard of that counting to 10 thing. But now I do it, too. Well, I suspect her children will probably end up doing it. Well, yeah, no kidding. But I, to this day, my sisters and I, we still do it. When Angie's in the car waiting for me and I have to run back in the house because yeah. I fought, yeah. forgot something. And then she goes, where were you so long? And I said, I had to sit down and count, <laughs> count to, to 10. 10. I don't know. We all get superstitions from our parents. And I have a really weird one. And it is on Wednesdays, you don't do laundry And this is something that my, I don't know, I don't know that it's a real superstition, but my mom told me this and every time she would try to do laundry on a Wednesday, let's say it was emergency or she forgot either the washing machine wouldn't work or something would happen. The electricity would go off or some, some weird thing. So she had this rule where we didn't do laundry on Wednesdays, which now I don't do. I have never done laundry on Wednesday. And then now our daughter 
doesn't do laundry on Wednesday. Yeah, this is either. one that'll this will go be handed down from generation True. to generation. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's a real thing, but it has become a thing. Well, I guess when it comes to antiquity, a lot of these quotes, folklore, and other ideas come from Greek mythology and philosophies. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of the literature we read today, the stories, and even the movies have some basis on ancient mythology. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Stories today, which has has been going on forever, but stories have a hard time being 100% original. Yeah. They seem to come out of different cultures and histories. And what's really interesting about that, people will quote Shakespeare, but you'll hear Shakespeare quotes or themes in current movies or sitcoms that you watch on television. It's kind of a rehash of the stories that have been going on forever. Mm -hmm. And that's true with motivational quotes. Mm -hmm. Motivational quotes like you become what you think about all day. Mm -hmm. That thing has been recouched, rewritten, and repositioned a million times, but always gets down to that same quote. And I'm not sure who originated it, but it's a pretty profound quote and it means a lot. So true. Okay, well, let's listen to our special guest today, Tiffany Apostolou. Okay, here we go. Tiffany, welcome to the Thought Row podcast. You know, both Indy and I have been really looking forward to chatting with you. Hi, yes, Tiffany. Good to have you with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. You know, Tiffany, we met you on social media and you have had a very interesting life. You're still having a very interesting life in the art world. Yeah. Oh, thank you. We have been looking forward to having you as a guest on our podcast. But before we move on to our interview, we always ask our guests what they had for breakfast. So what did you have for breakfast, Tiffany? (laughs) Fun question. So today I had some Greek yogurt with honey. And now that it's peach season, I chopped in some peaches too. So it was a fun time. That sounds delicious. We had peaches this morning as well. In yogurt. In yogurt. So... Oh, amazing. Yay. Great diet minds think alike. (laughs) I guess so. You know, you had Greek yogurt and I was going to ask you, we're going to talk later about your background and being in Greece, et cetera. And I was going Mm -hmm. to ask you, if you were in Greece, what do you think you would have had for breakfast? I think my diet hasn't really changed much, although the seasonal produce in in the United States is a little different, but I think Mm -hmm. probably something along the same lines or maybe some eggs with a little bit of tomato in the, that's a traditional Greek dish that we often do for breakfast. So you chop tomatoes and crumble some feta cheese, and then you add the eggs and scramble them all together. You know, you would think that both Inchi and I have Greek backgrounds because that's what we have for breakfast sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. We have feta cheese or salads too. So good. It's delicious. (laughs) Delicious. Yeah. Mediterranean diet. Yeah. I guess that would what you would call it. Yeah. We know you have quite a background in the art world, especially as an art researcher. Tiffany, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So when I started working on my graduate program, I started also working as an art researcher. And then I continued doing so full time afterward. So it started with some exhibition research and a lot of research for professors and people at New York University. 
And now I've been working at a blue chip gallery where I do mostly provenance research, Mm -hmm. which is basically creating a document that lists the entire history of an artwork, a history of ownership, where it's been shown, where it's uh, been published, Mm -hmm. any other fun facts about it. And some writing as well that's more marketing research. Do you research the secondary market? Yes, yes. Not everybody understands that. So could you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about what the secondary market for art is? Absolutely. So secondary market artwork is any artwork that has had previous ownership, whether that's one owner or 20. So basically, when it reenters the market and someone who owned it now seeks to sell it again, you have to verify everything about that work. So including work details and the basics, but also verify that it's authentic, verify that it's gone through each different owner in a legal fashion and all of that. So it's sort of a document that says that it's okay to purchase this work and here's its entire history. Oh, how interesting. That is interesting. You have to have a whole almost pedigree of people that it, have owned it basically before you. <laughs> yeah. It feels like each time it feels a bit like detective work. You get to know the work very, very intimately and you get to know every little thing about it and what it's been through. Oh, God, that would be very interesting, especially with some works of art. Mm-hmm. Yes, the older, the better. There was a time when I, when I was a photographer and I used to photograph a lot of art for museums and we would take it out of the frame. So what always amazed me was all right. the stuff that was written on the canvases. On the back. Yeah, on the back yes. or on the board in some cases and on solid wood on other cases. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the notes or it's almost as if these guys were trying to tell people something about themselves in the future, knowing that sooner or later somebody was going to look Look at the back of the painting. Yes, absolutely. I think one of my favorite instances was when I was working on a Stephen Perino work and we discovered an entire poem written on the back. Oh, oh. wow. How cool. Yeah. It, it gave a very intimate feel to the work. I bet. How did they apply that to the canvas on the back? So in his particular case, it was written on pencil. So I think we were lucky that it wasn't too old and it hadn't frayed enough so we could read it very clearly. Yeah. But I've seen pretty much everything. And every time you think you've seen it all, you bump into a work and there's something new. (laughs) That's so neat. It's very personal. It's like a personal note to to everyone, to the future. It's It's like, here I am. And And some of them could be, in my experience, some of them could be pretty downright sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm sure. Yes, yes. Now I'm going to digress here to your Greek heritage. I know when we talked about it, when we initially had a phone call, you've spent a lot of time in Greece. Can you tell us about growing up in Greece and your family and all that? Sure. So we moved there when I went to fifth grade. So it was quite an adjustment, even though Greek was spoken in my household Mm -hmm. a lot. It was kind of a challenge to be thrown into school and suddenly have to speak it every day and write it and the grammar, good heavens, the grammar. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yes, it's a beautiful language, but it, it could be a challenge to master. So it, it was a wonderful time and a difficult time. It was a totally different cultural experience than my life as a child in America had been. But 
I think what stayed with me the most was uh, how much access you have to so much history and how easy it is to get from one place to the next. And you're usually like a drive away or a ferry boat ride away yeah. from truly magical landscapes and, you know, ancient sites and museums, whether contemporary or not, and folk museums as well. It's a place that's really connected to its past. Mm-hmm. So I think that was something that really enchanted me when I lived there. I bet. I bet also, though, you're a relatively young child, and I assume you were in school when you were living yes. in America. And then, you know, you had your friends and you yeah. knew how everybody chatted and talked and Such all that. Change. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're in the Greek culture. And I have, right. I mean, kids are kids all over the world. But that being yeah. said, <laughs> they probably well just communicating with them things that were colloquialisms that you might have been using in the U.S. probably weren't fitting in very well there. Right. Yeah. So all of a sudden your brain had to transliterate. Well, it would actually, instead of translating, it would transliterate. So sometimes like you would speak in Greek, but you would say American expressions and people would stare at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. what? <laughs> what did you just say? And ironically, like when I moved back, that happened again, even though I continued training in English and you know, acquired some degrees in that as well. Like when I moved back to New York, I caught myself having a hard time transitioning back to speaking English full time. Isn't that funny how the brain can adapt to what your environment is and then it's difficult sometimes to change back. It takes a minute. I think, I yeah, think the, for sure. Uh, I, I would think they'd be more sensitive to it going into the Greek culture as opposed to coming back into the American culture. Is that true? So actually, I think at least, so I lived in Padra, which is on the Peloponnese. It's the third largest city, but I don't think it was very common for schools to get students who came from a different country when I was growing up. I'm sure it's different now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but when I was a child, I was sort of a an oddball out. I, I was in a unique situation. So I remember feeling very out of place in the first few years. And of course, like because I was in fifth grade, I graduated elementary school really fast and then I was thrown into middle school. So that was a whole another adjustment period. Yeah. Yeah. So it was actually easier for me to transition back to the United States and especially New York where everybody's from somewhere. True. And it's very multicultural. I did bump into some misunderstandings during grad school, depending on how old a professor was Uh Um, because my accent stayed fairly American. And you can usually tell that I lived somewhere else from like little mistakes I might make in pronunciation or syntactical errors. Uh So it came up in my writing a little bit because I wrote more like a Greek and a Brit than I wrote like an American. Oh, they would pick that up. Oh, yeah, they would. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but New York felt totally comfortable. Everybody's from somewhere. Everybody has an accent. It's it, You fit right in. Even if you're from New York, you have an accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depending about where you live. So that's so true. Yeah, it's interesting Truly. that your professors picked that out. I've spoke English my whole entire life and have lived in America all my life. And I still have trouble mm-hmm. <laughs> pronouncing words. <laughs> I still uh, mess yeah. them up. 
<laughs> I mean, I think what it is, is that when you're trained to become an art historian, you're also trained in how to use the English language very, very well. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these people are, I don't know, English geniuses. So wow. they, yeah. they pick up on the slightest things. Yeah. Well, we noticed when hmm. we first talked to you, and, and even right now, you're very articulate. Very articulate. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's very, it's very nice, and it's very refreshing to a degree. I think this kind of leads me to my next question, is mm-hmm. how did you get interested in creating your own career in the art world? When so did that I happen? When did it happen? That's a good question. I've wondered that often. I think it traces back to my childhood. Of course, like as children and going through school, you don't really know all the jobs that you could do when you grow up. But I knew I wanted to do something related to culture and the arts. And I was raised like, a you know, by Greek immigrants. So I was raised on Greek mythology and Aesop's fables. And we learned about, you know, all the heroes of the 1821 uh, Greek revolution. So I was very in tune with history and cultural heritage. So it was sort of always a passion that just like grew when I lived in Greece because everything was at my fingertips. So I think it started then. And then eventually when I entered the workforce through architecture, I started meeting more people and discovering like what I could do in the art world. And that's when I officially transitioned into it. Well, your upbringing in Greece exposed you to incredible art yeah and I mean, beauty the, truly the history the history and beauty of art mm-hmm. yes i feel very very lucky to have experienced that yeah i can imagine now i know that when we talked to you initially on the phone you talked to us about your website and mm-hmm. i'm going to try to pronounce it correctly and i think it's petty techness right Yes. Yeah, that's totally great. You know, when I was putting together the title, I never really (laughs) thought of how tricky it might be for people to pronounce, but you did a great job. So it works to your advantage. It does. It it works to your advantage. You remember it. People remember it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if like, so basically what it means is about art. So techni in Greek means art and peri is sort of like a word we use to say about or around. So yeah, that's sort of how I came up with it is. And then if we also have this word called peritechnos, which means ornate and decorated. So it, it works like a sort of wordplay. Oh, nice. That's really nice. But again, it's you know when you have words that are a little bit more complicated, especially mm-hmm. to the English ear, it kind of works to your advantage. It's yeah, actually a good marketing, good marketing ploy because then people, <laughs> you know, want to know well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Especially because they're going to add, like we did when we first talked to you. We go, mm-hmm. that sounds great. What the heck does that mean? And then yeah. you explain the right. derivation <laughs> of it, and that was really quite interesting. And it's so unique and cool. You want to know more about it? Thank so you. tell us a little bit about the program you developed? Sure. So I sort of started working on it when I was still in grad school, when I started meeting more people in the arts. And I noticed that there was a gap in the market for Greek contemporary art. And so when Uh people thought of Greek art, you often spoke of, you know, ancient art, but there is such a wealth of artistic production that's modern and contemporary. And then I also discovered that New York used to be quite the hub for it. And there was even an auction house department at some point specializing in Greek art. 
And I'm not entirely sure how and why it fizzled, but I thought it would be great to create a platform to not just amplify those voices that had started becoming marginalized again and underrepresented, but also to sort of, it was like an experiment for me too, to get acquainted with my own culture and its contemporary expressions. And then of course that led to, you know, meeting and talking with people who aren't of Greek heritage, but who are influenced by it. And that was also fascinating to me. So what ended up happening is I started with um, writing articles and doing interviews with artists. And then it started growing, which was fantastic. And then in 2020, because of the whole pandemic and being locked in, I was somehow able, it sort of worked to our benefit. And we were able to do more with the artists because everybody was at home Mm -hmm. and everything in person had been postponed indefinitely. So we started pivoting a little and what we we added a page where people could feature their artwork. And so I started working with some artists that I was already uh, intending on creating exhibitions with. And we also did a virtual exhibition that's still on view. Um, we wrote a catalog for it that's online and free to access. And yeah, so we added that page and it sort of added an element of, you know, someone could email us and get in touch with the artist directly about purchasing an artwork, which sort of goes away from the traditional, you know, opaque gallery model. Mm-hmm. And everyone interested is involved and knows exactly like what they're paying for and how it's going to work. So it liberates the artist a lot very as good. well in that sense. Yeah, very yeah. good. You know, you. my next question was going to actually be how all that's been going on this last year and so and how it impacted you and your website, et cetera. But you kind of explained that. I do want to ask you a question, yeah. though, about the history of Greek art in this country And was there any contemporary art evolved or was it all historical art? So that's a great question. So in New York in particular, there was a huge influx of, you know, migration from Greece starting Mm from the 1920s and after. And in the 1960s, there was also like a big bam of it, I guess. So there was always groups of artists who were producing work there, you know, and you have like some famous names like Stephen Adonakos and William Baziotis and a number of other people, like Linda Benglis, who are still active, some of them today. Yeah, some of those were yeah. mid-century artists then, contemporary, so, modern. Yeah, I guess it's it's the funny thing about labeling art historical periods. Um, I would say they're modern and contemporary, depending on how far back you go. But I think like William Baziotis and... Like Stephen Adonakos are definitely contemporary. They work with well, I think so. Both of those people are now deceased. But Adonakos, I mean, their artwork is actually my favorite. Yes, yeah, the yes, artwork is very artwork. contemporary to this today. Yes, mm-hmm. for sure. So William also, you know, had close relations with Rothko, and Stephen Adonakos was part of the light art movement. And Linda de Gris is super active today. So yes, definitely part of the contemporary scene. But there's like so many others too who are sort of, they, they became niche and I don't really know why. Maybe mm-hmm. it's, you know, gallery representation or, you know, the workings of the art world. Exposure. In general. Yeah. But that was my goal was to see how they fell into the whole 
art historical movements of their periods and how they were in dialogue with artists of their time that we're more familiar with. Well, both Angie and I have looked at your website. It's very impressive. And we yeah, hope we our it. listeners take the time to, to take to a look at it because it it's it's very interesting, extremely well done, by the way. And Thank excellent. you so much. Yeah, it's, it's really quite good. Uh, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the history of Greek art? I think what comes to mind is how it seems like so much of the population is more familiar with antiquity. And then somehow from Byzantium and later, we had ups and downs in the history of art and how closely related artists were with other countries. And of course, like a a number of wars and mishaps historical historically speaking mm-hmm. uh, came to play in that as well um because Greece has gone through like a number of very difficult hi- historical periods consecutively yeah, yeah they have they have but i think that's what i've what i usually think about the most is how our ancient history and artistic production seems to be the most well known but then everything else sort of falls into people's individual interests yeah now, in your travels through Greece, what was your favorite place to visit visually? Like where, when you go there, you just go, oh, this is just a slice of heaven. Goodness, so many places. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard. I think I've fallen, <laughs> I think I've fallen in love a little bit with everywhere I've been. Yeah. I think though, toward the end before moving back to New York, I had spent a considerable amount of time in Southern and Western Peloponnese. Mm-hmm. So around the area of what we call Messenia. And that was a truly beautiful area. It had a lot of medieval remains and a very intense history with like Greece's revolution for independence in the 1800s. Yeah. So it's it was interesting to me to see how people were maintaining their traditional architecture and how nature seemed to be so different from, you know, like the Cycladic Islands that most people are familiar with. It's much more mountainous and green. And it just felt magical driving around those villages and learning about each place's histories. And you wouldn't think that so many small places would have such a wealth of history. And yet, like each one had some event to narrate. Well, it's a pivotal part of the world civilization was taking place there. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. you've answered this question, but I'm going to kind of touch on it again a little bit. So I get the impression, both Angie and I get the impression that it's your goal to help improve Greek art and its understanding in America, Mm -hmm. its resurgence, if you will. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I basically want to put it into context and direct dialogue with global artistic movements and production of each artist's time. Because we have, for example, we have like wonderful modernists in Greece. One example would be uh, Gikas. And it's great to put these people back into dialogue with their own contemporaries in, you know, in Europe and America. Because it sort of creates like a greater continuity in history and it doesn't seem as niche as it might right now. And I noticed that lately there's also a movement from other 
groups in that same direction. So it feels like it's something that's growing as well, which is great. Like, for example, we have like Art Athens residency that situates artists from America in Athens. And now they're also seeking to go the other way around. So creating a cross-pollination between the two markets. There's Hellenic American Project, which has a more sociological Mm -hmm. streak to it, but it maps the history of the Greek diaspora at Queens College, and it also produces exhibitions. We have the Greek American Folklore Society, which is focused on the folkloric historical production in America primarily. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's there's been a lot of movement lately. So it does. It feels great and it feels like it's expanding. Formidable project for you. Yeah. Definitely. And I know we were talking about Greek mythology when we had your initial phone call. And Mm -hmm. I really thought your answer was very interesting. So I wanted to ask you about that. I know in the United States, we're exposed to various stories about Greek gods and things like that. Mm -hmm. But tell us your experience and thoughts about growing up with Greek mythology. Uh, Sure. So much like most of us, you start with a kosher version of the myths. And then the more I grew and the more into history I got, the more I wanted to read more. And then I became fascinated with how uh, mythology has intersected and influenced, you know, more cultures uh, across the world and not always necessarily positively. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, especially if you go into like feminist issues and all that. Mm -hmm. So that was a a fascinating thing to see. And also, you know, by extension, see how artists and people are sort of reacting and responding to it today sometimes. Yeah. And I really like the comment that you made to me and Rod when we had our initial phone call where you said, in the United States, people grow up with fairy tales and in Greece, they grow up with mythology. And I thought that uh, is so true. You're right. Yeah, I feel like, so I'm not to discredit, I'm sure like children grow up with fairy tales. I, I had my fair share of, you know, Disney films. <laughs> but yeah, you it's hard to find a household that doesn't have like an illustrated version of the Greek myths or, you know, the, the gods mm-hmm. on Olympus. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, it's such a story. They have so much power and it makes for yeah. a good read for kids, you know? Well, a yeah, lot of times. It's very human centric. Yeah, and a lot of Greek mythology triggers a lot of literature that we read today and Absolutely. you don't even know it. Right, exactly. You, you, don't know, yes. you don't know that that's really based on Greek mythology. It fuels it's, a lot of stories. Oh, it fuels so a many lot of things. stories. Yeah. Yes, so many things. I think the most interesting book I read about that recently was Antigone Rising. And Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, I forget the author's name, but she she goes into details on how Greek mythology influenced, you know, so many cultures and in what ways and your mind sort of gets blown. Yeah, the influence. Yeah, how layered it is. Oh, yeah, very Mm -hmm. layered. So true. You know, our daughter visited Naxos in Greece and she really loved the country. She loved the country. She loved the culture and she really loved the people. In fact, she's always telling us we should move to Greece. It's true. I think (laughs) think she's ready to go. But what is she? I can't blame her. Yeah, she just, I mean, they were, they were, it was was her honeymoon, right? Yeah, it was their honeymoon. (laughs) Fantastic. Stephanie, what was your most happiest memory of being in Greece? I mean, the happiest memory you had. Mm, 
And I'm sure you had more than so, one, but let's pick the top. Yeah. Let's pick the top one. Uh, this might sound funny, but I think the happiest memory I have is actually a scent memory. And it's this scent of heating fig leaves. So we have around the summertime, our figs, our fig trees are in, you know, they, they grow all these like delicious, juicy figs and the leaves when they're in the heat, cause it's like, it's like 40 degrees Celsius yeah. by July. Yeah. They exude this aroma that alongside, you know, the soil burning and the grass and all that, to me, it became like the quintessential scent of summer. And it's one of the nicest like memories I have. That's a beautiful memory. That's such a beautiful memory. And I, yeah. it was really funny because the other day when we were walking, because we live in the mountains and mm-hmm. you're aware of smells because uh, the, right. the forest changes. And, and I can so relate to what you said on a different level because... When we were walking, all of a sudden it smelled like summer because the trees right. were exuding their their piney, woody scent mm-hmm. and, and tons of pollen, unfortunately. But right. <laughs> but I can so relate to your your fig experience because they have that smell and you can't really describe it. But yeah, you I know. think everybody right. has that, you know, fresh soil, maybe your grandmother gardening yeah. and then right. turning over yeah. of soil. Right. I know we love figs, so we go out of our way to find fig trees. So oh, we gosh. Can, we can it was, kinda... it's one of my favorite things. I look forward to it this summer. <laughs> That yeah, and goat cheese here. and figs, it doesn't get any better. Oh, truly. So good. So good. <laughs> so my question is, is have you ever been to Delphi? Unfortunately, no. I It's still on my list. I always wanted to go. It So because you have to take a detour for Delphi and it's quite out of your way and it was usually on our way back or on our way to somewhere. It was always sort of like, we'll get to it next time. We'll get to it next time. And we never actually managed to go. Well, it's but a, it it's is a, mountain, a dream destination. Yeah, yeah. It's a windy mountain road and it's everybody talks about it. We have so it. many of those. Yeah, everybody <laughs> talks about it. Everybody reads about the Oracle of Delphi and all that. But it's funny mm-hmm. how many people that I've talked to, I've only known actually uh, one couple that actually visited there. Yeah, and then the wife didn't want to go because it was so windy and they were afraid of heights. And then right. and then what happened? Well, her husband was kind enough to pick up a bottle of wine. And by the time she <laughs> got up there, she was yelling out the car windows and probably... Insane. Well, probably would go, there goes another American. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful story. Yeah, um, she had, yeah that she... sounds exactly right for like what happens on a Greek summer. Yeah. yeah, it's a magical place. I've always wanted to go. And I, I love the places that have such a spiritual history behind them. They're oh, yes. in energetically charged. I mean, not to sound a little too woo-woo, but there's just certain places where you go and you just feel the energy. That's what we wondered about it. We're like, did you feel anything from there? Because it's, you know, very spiritually charged. Yeah, exactly. The husband said he did. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, she did. She did too. I mean, she connected. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't gone to Delphi, but I've been to some other places that are are like that. You can also sort of feel it near near Elefsina. So that area, it's it's right by Athens. It's like 
if you're going from south to north, it's right outside of Athens. Uh-huh. And that's where the Eleusinian mysteries took place. So if you're visiting ancient sites there, definitely feel an energy. And then I think the last place that felt utterly magical was on the island of Milos, where we took a boat and they took us to this cave that used to be Mm-hmm. An ancient rituals cave. There's not much left because the ocean has eroded everything. So mm. they don't know the history in full. Mm. But you absolutely, once you enter that cave, it, it feels completely different from anything else you experience on the island. I bet. You know, Roman culture and Greek culture, mm-hmm. especially and throughout the world, but especially here in the United States, have often been confused when it comes to art. Could you define hmm. the difference between them? That's a great question. Well, the history, they, there's, so, yeah. there's, there's crossover in their histories. So, yeah. For sure, yeah. for sure. So I don't know if there's like one definition for it. Usually it helps to read labels in museums because they tend to explain. So a lot of Roman production, especially the sculptures that were copies of marble sculptures, tended to also be in copper so they tended to be cast over marble sculptures and painted yes and i'm sure there's more differences but because the overlap historically was so deep i think it the only real way to make yourself more acquainted and comfortable with you know sort of seeing the differences is when you read the labels and see things exhibited side by side, like for example, at the Met Museum. Mm -hmm. I think where it becomes clearer, where the differences become clearer is when Byzantium was founded and we are moving more into a late antique art. Mm -hmm. So there was that shift that was also like a religious shift that affected sculptural production, especially a lot. And it started, you know, moving things toward a more Byzantine style. And that's where you sort of start seeing more of the difference more naturally, like it's easier to spot. I know when we were at the Met and we were in that section and there's so much to read. There and is. you try mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, you try to absorb it. It's hard to get to it, all yeah, of it. Yeah, it's <laughs> a terribly hard. And even when we were in Rome and we went to all the various museums and different places mm-hmm. where they had a lot of Roman art, historical Roman art, and especially the stonework that was done in the collages, all that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's and the mosaics and things. Yeah, mosaics, yeah it's yeah. very comp. Yeah, and it's very complicated because also, for example, like the Romans used and hired, and a lot of the times they were slaves as well. They, they hired Greek artists, so it's hard to really define a line of like what is Roman and Greek art. Like it was done under the Roman Empire, but was the artist Greek? Were they, you know, from? Egypt. That's a really good point. It it, it was a very multicultural empire. So it's sort of hard to like pinpoint one like strict definition. Well, the Romans weren't afraid to find talent and exploit it. Exactly. Right. Mm. And and even expand it too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have our list of questions for you. Let's see. Name three things you hope to achieve or accomplish in the next year. So I would like to maybe realize... Short answers. Make them short, quick answers. Okay. So hopefully realize at least one in-person exhibition that we had to postpone. So that would be really nice. A little more growth for the platform. And a third one, meeting more people in Greece during my trip 
and coming back with more wealth. You left out, I want to be on more podcasts. <laughs> ah, true. <laughs> yeah. Actually, this was a great experience because <laughs> this is my first one. <laughs> well, you, you're, ex- you're doing you're so an good. excellent guest and we've yeah. learned a lot from you and I know our listeners will have too. Yeah. Well, you guys are wonderful hosts. You make it easy to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you well, so thank much. You. In your research that you've done in the art world, mm-hmm. there must be at least one discovery that made you or that you were greatly surprised about. What what shocked you the most out of all your research? What shocked me the most? I thought about this so much. And don't much. say it's when you looked at Rod and Inji's websites about <laughs> our art. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Ever since I joined the art world, I've been shocked like almost every month there's something new i think i think the most shocking experience was how much you can learn about an artwork's history just by being alone with it for enough time oh i like that yes it can tell you so much and i think that was that was a truly like magical experience I I can uh, yeah, see we that. Can, we can see that. Yeah. You know, even when you go into a museum and there's always a herd of people standing in front of mm-hmm. the most famous painting. And we, Inji right. and I always go up into some dark corner, poorly lit piece of art that nobody even yeah. gives a second thought to or a second chance to. And then we stand there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of times Inji uh, and I will separate. So we're not confusing yeah, each other by our yeah, comments things, or, yeah. or the inter- energy way we each might be given off. And then we'll just sit mm-hmm. there and take a look at a piece of art like that. And you know that artist put his uh, blood, sweat, and tears into making that mm-hmm. piece of work. And of course, he's relegated to some little dark corner without no spotlight in the ceiling hitting it. Mm-hmm. But right. it just had, they just, a lot of those pieces give off a really interesting energy. I really felt yes. that. Now, this is a more modern art, but I really felt that with Arshley Gorky. I remember mm-hmm. that. Yes. Well, that was at LACMA, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, he, he gives off energy yeah. that's almost disturbing, but it's pretty It was pretty a little profound. bizarre. It was yeah, a bizarre energy. Profound. I feel like his personal history yeah. is embedded within his work. Yeah. Yes. It, it's, if you... If you read about his personal history, which unfortunately a lot of people I adore, have, I, I adore have. his history. Yeah, yes, his history I think is. it's a must read. Honestly, I think everyone should know about him and his background. Yeah, his background, his history, and his personal physical yeah. challenges mm-hmm. that he faced, etc. Yes. Okay, so yes. now we're going to ask you a question that we've been asking all of our guests, and that's if you could sit on a park bench and chat Mm -hmm. with anyone from the past, who would it be? So I would say Stephen Adonakos. Stephen passed away in 2013, and it was the year I actually moved back to New York. So I missed him for a hair. (laughs) I always wanted to speak with him. His work so he does light, he did light work and he worked a lot with neon, of course, like other materials as well. His drawings are stunning, but he had this fascinating connection with Byzantine art. And it was such an interesting, you know, it, it was so interesting how he incorporated it within his contemporary practice. And I feel like he truly captured the essence of, of a lot of the core concept of that time period. Which was no easy task. No, it's not. Absolutely not. But it's I, such think, a, it's I think what's spiritual really, thing. Was, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what's really interesting oh. is your ability 
to see that and define it. And understand it. And understand it. It's what drew me to his work. And to to be entirely honest, so my master's thesis also focused on Byzantine and concepts found in contemporary artistic production. So he, he was basically my idol. And yeah, if I could just have a moment to speak with him, mm-hmm. that would, yeah, I think that would be the most amazing thing. Well, you've had the opportunity. His art lives on and he lives through his yes. art. And which I've is... been very lucky because I got to go to his studio and I met with oh, his yeah. wonderful wife and it was unbelievable. So I think it was the closest I could get. <laughs> oh, what a lovely experience. Yeah, that is lovely. Well, we're at the point where we don't like to say this, but we're getting to the edge, the very close edge to this podcast. And I want to really thank you for being our guest today. Tiffany, you're a wealth of information. You're passionate about what you do, which both Angie and I greatly appreciate that and respect that. And you've been a great guest and we're anxious for other people to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. Thank you well, for being thank here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, you know, giving me your platform to share my experiences and work with you. It, it's truly I, a wonderful experience to have that, you know, privilege. So I thank you very, very much. And thank you for your kind words. And I also, I agree with you, Rod, and, and I so enjoyed having you here with us today, uh, Tiffany. And I want to let everyone know if you would like to know more about Tiffany and her website, we will have links for Tiffany on the show notes and also under the show guest tab on thoughtrowpodcast.com. So everyone can learn more about her and connect with her on social media. And please check out our website. Yeah, please do. You're going to be surprised, creatively surprised, right? Yeah, and inspired. Inspired. You'll be inspired. Thank you, Tiffany. It was wonderful having you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day.